Thursday Arts Preview receives support from Spokane Media Federal Credit Union, a member-owned financial cooperative offering lending and banking services to professionals in film, marketing, performing arts, and more. Information online at smfcu.org. Welcome to the Thursday Arts Preview, where the P is parenthetical. I'm your host, E.J. Ionelli. It's fundraising season, and we at Spokane Public Radio are about to have a pledge drive of our own next week. But this Friday, Humanities Washington will be holding its annual Bedtime Stories fundraiser in Spokane. A little later, we'll get a sneak preview of one of the original stories written for this year's event. Also this weekend in Spokane is a concert by the Chicago-based pianist Jahari Stampley, who's performing there alongside his mother, the multi-instrumentalist Diarania Stampley. And while we often hear artists and their work described as award-winning, in Jahari's case, that's both apt and timely. He just won the 2023 Herbie Hancock Institute of Jazz International Piano Competition, which took place this past weekend. It's one of the most prestigious competitions in jazz. Jahari released his first CD, titled Still Listening, last month, and in August he was here in our studio to talk about it with our Friday afternoon jazz host, Rachel Bate McMurphy. Here are some highlights that Rachel provided from that interview. Go ahead and talk to them about some people you've played with, some projects that you've been on. So I've been lucky. I've been able to perform with Stanley Clark. I toured with him for a bit. Keon Harold, other artists like Marquise Hill. You may know Derek Hodge, of course. We're actually playing um, in a couple of days in Chicago, and he's starting his tour for City Winery, and we have some other dates coming up. So I'll be on tour with him for a bit, and I play a lot with my mother as well. She's a Grammy-nominated artist uh, by the name of Dee Urania Stampley, and she has a project out as well and plays multiple instruments. So, yeah, it's just a lot of amazing people you encounter. I'm just fortunate to have the privilege to share with them. And you've talked in some past interviews about growing up with your mother as a professional musician and how that influenced you. What what do you feel like the biggest takeaway is as far as having that influence of, of a mother who's not just a musician, but a very fine musician? It's like growing up, I was so used to her being in my life. And you always kind of take for granted things that you don't understand. And the more I, older I get, I, I start to realize that she's so special and it's really such an amazing privilege to be able to call her my mother and be able to have that influence in my life musically. Before I even began playing music, it's the records that she had in the house and just her own musicality and ability to play multiple instruments very well. And it's just, you know, I, I feel like it, just the environment that I was in was so musically inspiring before I even touched an instrument new solo CD was released recently, and it's called Still Listening. What's the significance of that title? The album cover, it actually, the front cover is me as a younger child looking out into the mountains, kind of, um, it's a painting. And then behind it is an older image of myself in the same angle, but I'm turned around looking, still looking ahead, looking in the opposite direction, but I'm, I'm still looking, I'm still listening to what I heard 
as a younger child. And for me personally, I, I remember hearing music specifically before I knew what it was on a theoretical level or before I even understood what I was hearing. And it's kind of a reflection of life. It's like, as you're a child, there's things you don't understand and you experience life at that age. And you look back as you get older and you realize that you wanna stay connected to your younger childlike self. You still wanna to listen to your younger self in a way and stay in tune with your imagination and your happiness as a person who can reflect and still listen, you know, still listen to your own guidance and your own happiness and still try to find a balance in your mind and your growth as a person. What are some things that have pulled you away throughout life from your original childlike vision? It happened from anything, from food addiction or from interacting with the wrong social circles or from just being immersed in something that's possibly an addiction, like even scrolling on Instagram or being consumed by social media or being consumed by people around you who fill your head with negativity. And there's just a lot of things that we experience throughout our walks of life. And I think in a way, it's good to stay positive in your own mind and try to keep in tune with your inner peace. Again, try to think back to your younger imagination and always remember that you are you and no one else and just stay true to yourself and try to stay in tune with your happiness and emotions in the best way you can, you know. Talk to us about all of the beautiful technique, virtuosity that that we see, This these flourishes uh, across the piano. What are you thinking while you're playing something like that? Uh, so a lot of times it can be in the moment, but I'm trying to kind of tell a story and drift dynamically and have surprises. And in a way, I'm kind of thinking about an audience perspective of what they might expect or not expect and trying to implement different techniques like, you know, pauses and flourishes and dynamics and just trying to constantly be creative with placements. What is your classical music background? Did you study classical piano? Yes, so I actually started, um, the way I started was from watching a YouTuber named P. Miller at the age of 14, I would watch him and I would study his hands on video and I would watch his fingers and kind of mimic his fingerings and press the buttons in the same order that he would. So I would be playing based on shapes initially and I didn't know the note names. But then eventually when I got to college, after I kind of progressed more into music, I started studying classical music and other things of that nature. So. And so often the pedagogy in in music is taught um, purely or primarily, at least, from a classical standpoint. So um, many people who've been through conservatories or music schools, they uh, the the shift of repertoire is pointed towards that classical music because that's where the pedagogy and the history comes from. But if if you're starting out as someone who's uh, learning from YouTube and maybe even listening from modern style. Was that a barrier for you to get into the classical side of it, or was it was it exciting and welcoming for you? What I started to realize that a lot of my restraint in my playing came from more my mind and telling me that I wasn't able or 
in a way being fearful of the repertoire, but in a way, the way I minimized it in my brain was by telling myself that in a sense, all you're really doing is pressing a sequence of buttons in order and you're playing them consecutively. And so in a way it minimized the feeling of danger of the piece. It wasn't as threatening to look at or to approach. And I think that barrier on my mind allowed me to just continue to play less constraint and play more free, risk, play risk free in a way, you know. And it must help that you have such a musical mind and, and that you had such a musical upbringing. You know, I definitely would say I'm grateful to have had that. And a lot of times it rubs off on me in ways I unconsciously don't even realize. And so I'm just thankful that I was surrounded by so much music of different styles at such a young age. That was Spokane Public Radio's Friday afternoon jazz host, Rachel Bade McMurphy, talking with up-and-coming jazz pianist Jahari Stampley here in our studio this past summer. Jahari will play as a jazz duo with his mother, the multi-instrumentalist Diarania Stampley, this Saturday, October 21st, at Holy Names Music Center. You can get tickets for that concert and more information at imaginejazz.org. And you can find Rachel's full interview with Jahari on our website at spokanepublicradio.org. Looking ahead to next week, the annual Spokane is Reading event is bringing the author of their featured book to the area. That featured book is titled Lesser Known Monsters of the 21st Century, which recently won the Washington State Book Award for Fiction, and its author is the Seattle-based writer Kim Fu. Kim is the author of two previous novels, For Today I Am a Boy and The Lost Girls of Camp Forevermore. She also wrote a book of poetry, but Lesser Known Monsters is her first collection of short stories. When we spoke by phone recently, I asked Kim why she made the switch from poetry and novels to short stories. You know, I've never felt like I have control over my writing instincts or, you know, what I'm working on. Uh, I feel like when I first started writing a whole bunch of short stories uh, and I started floating the idea to people that maybe I was writing a collection, uh, I got, you know, some pushback or some like tellingly lukewarm responses. Like I I feel like I was sort of discouraged a little bit from it. You know, Uh, there was this perception that short stories aren't as serious or as marketable or something as novels, but you know, I could not be deterred. I've always loved short stories as a reader um, and I've like written them here and there but towards the end of 2017, it was like this switch flipped in my brain. And for three years, they were all I wanted to write. They were all I wanted to read almost. Uh, I was like, I thought about them constantly. I was obsessed with the form. And, you know, in, in looking for like an explanation for this, I have gone back and looked at like, what was the last book I read before this happened? Uh, and it was Stories of Your Life and Others by Ted Chang. Uh, so I think that might have been, you know, the trigger where I was like, all right, this is the thing I I. I really want to do. Um, but it really did feel sort of compulsive and involuntary. And, you know, now I feel like my interests are turning, you know, maybe back to the novel. And yeah, and I feel like nothing anybody can tell me will will change it. It's just, you know, the art does what it does, I guess. And it's often been said that short stories are harder to write than novels because you don't have the, the expansiveness that novels afford. Uh, did you find that to be the case? 
Mm, I feel like they're just incredibly different in that, you know, they're as different from each other for me to write as from writing an essay or a poem. I do think that as a reader, I'm a little harder on a short story than a novel. Like I feel like with a novel, I might, you know, even read a couple chapters or 50 pages or something without being totally drawn in yet. Cause I kind of just want to see where it's going and I'll like meander along with it and let it like build up slowly in layers. And I feel like with a short story, I want it to like grab me from line one, you know, I want to hit the ground running. I want to be in it um, because it has so much less time to establish a world and, you know, characters who feel wholly realized. But yeah, I just, I think it's more that they're like very, very different and they're very hard in different ways. A comparison I've made before is that I feel like, writing a novel feels like trying to build a house while living in the house. <laughs> so you're like pouring a foundation and building a frame and you don't have an idea, any idea what the whole thing's going to look like. And it's still not keeping out the wind and you're stuck here for years. And like writing a short story feels like trying to put together a watch. So you have like a million of these tiny little pieces that all have to fit together just so, or the thing won't run. And so they're like very different experiences and very different challenges uh, with like different pleasures. But, you know, like it's hard to say which one of those two things is harder exactly. And it's interesting that you say that you're more critical towards a short story and that you feel as though it has to grip you from line one, because I think of a, one of the stories in this collection, like 20 hours, the first line might be the first time I killed my wife. And did you, were you conscious of that when you were writing? Yes, Absolutely. I, I just, you know, sort of constitutionally as a writer, I really love brevity. Like, I really love cutting. You know, when I used to work as a magazine editor, and one of my, one of the things I was known for was called the scalpel edit, where it's like I could extract thousands of words, and even the writer couldn't necessarily tell it was gone. I, I more often, as a writer, have trouble in the other direction, where you know, there's not enough there, you know, where I think I'm expressing something, but there's not enough connective tissue or there's, you know, there's not enough there for someone else to understand because I love to just like tear back and tear back and tear back and keep things really tight and quick. So that's a bit of the way I write and the way I think. But yeah, I do, I, I do think about that as being important to me in a short story as having that kind of energy from the very beginning. And did any of that feedback come from readers or your editor in this instance where they said, look, there isn't enough detail here. You're going to have to flesh this out a little bit more. Yes. I'm really grateful to uh, my editor at Tin House, Maisie Cochran, especially towards the endings of some of the stories. Um, I feel like there was often like a missing beat or like an ending that was not quite earned because it needed a little more. Or in the case of a couple of the stories, I feel like the very core of the story was not coming through just because I was being too coy or like, you know, withholding too much information because I really, you know, as a reader, I really love piecing things together myself and sort of like making lateral leaps and things like that. But I think as a writer, you have to find that line where it's like a positive experience of construction as a reader. It's not just like, I don't know what's going on. And with some of these I think there's a temptation to read or to want to read a message or a moral. I think when things become a little more surreal and a little more fantastical, we go looking for that um, moral or that ethical anchor. Is that something that you intended or are these, is that only maybe in some stories, but in other stories, they're just meant to be kind of enjoyed for what they are? I try purposely not to think about that until very late in the process of writing a piece. You know, as you said, I think fantastical elements lend themselves to moral metaphor 
kind of inevitably, uh, but that it better serves the earlier phases of writing a piece to think about the fantastical thing really in a very literal way, you know, to just think about how does it work? How are these characters reacting? What would logically happen next? You know, just sort of taking it at face value and not thinking at all about this like metaphorical meaning that's going to get layered on top of it. I think sort of towards the end when you're editing and rewriting, it is sort of important to think about those things so that you're not doing it by accident. You know, so you're not having messages that are coming through that you did not intend or that are painful or offensive in some way that you didn't intend. Um, Like I prefer stories that have kind of a multiplicity of readings at the same time, you know, that if there is, you know, a moral or, you know, something fantastical is meant to be a metaphorical representation of something in the real world, that there's like multiple ways of reading that and that it's not functioning in like a way that is like simply boiled down. And I mean, I do think that fundamentally, I think of myself as an entertainer more than a moralist. Some of my primary motivation while writing is that, you know, the next sentence is not boring. And that the question of like, how is my work functioning materially in the world and like, you know, hearts and minds is something that I think if I thought about it too much while I was writing, I wouldn't be able to write at all. Like, I think that's a sort of a terrifying thought. And I guess in that same vein, do you begin with the concepts and then explore from there? So, for example, in Liddy First to Fly, a young girl sprouts wings. And in time cubes, well, there are these time cubes that are capable of accelerating and reversing time. And then in Bridezilla, there's kind of a, a wedding or a bride that departs and becomes part of a larger entity. When you're conceiving of these stories, do they start with that fantastical kernel or does that come a bit later because there's a, a more practical interaction that you're imagining and then all of a sudden you realize, oh, well, uh, this person could have wings? Uh, that's tricky because I feel like the concept comes first, sort of. But what actually enables me to start writing tends to be like a sensory image. Um, I think those kinds of concepts are actually very easy to come up with. Like, I think most people, you know, could just think of like, oh, a a girl grows wings out of her legs. Ideas are easy, right? Writing is hard. Um, So it's like, I think it's like I have tons of these concepts that the vast majority will go nowhere. But what will like allow me entrance into one of them and will make a story is if I can picture something sensorily specific, something I can actually see or the characters can see uh, or touch or smell or feel. You know, I remember having, you know, the idea for the girl with wings and like drawing it at the breakfast table, you know, like just, just a stick figure, like where would these, like how, how would these wings work mechanically sort of, right? Like if they were so low on her body, they would drag on the ground, she wouldn't be able to fly. How would, you know, just sort of thinking through these mechanics as like a, you know, just kind of a thought experiment. But it's not until like, you know, I, I can think about like, the feel of the wings being weighed down by seawater, then it's like, okay, now I have entrance into a story. And in this collection, you really doubled down on the surreal and the fantastical and the sort of magical realist elements. As you sit here and contemplate your next work, are you planning on kind of sticking with this vein now that you've explored it in these short stories? Or do you feel the pendulum swinging in the opposite direction where you want to be hyper-realist instead? I initially thought that the next thing I wrote would be equally speculative and fantastical because I, I found it so exciting and so interesting and so freeing. But I am pretty deep into my next project and it is a novel. Uh, and it is 
turning out more, I would not say realistic, but kind of similar to the most realist stories in this collection, where there is like an edge of surreality and it's, and also where it's like not really concerned with plausibility. Like I would say actually like writing my first two novels, that that was often something I found a little that I think I let get to me more than was necessary. I was like worrying about kind of the literal plausibility of what was happening um, and sort of maybe even toning down the drama or what happened uh, because I felt like it was unrealistic um, in a way that I don't think is actually artistically useful or right exactly. Uh, and I think that writing a collection that was more respective and fantastical has sort of freed me from that thought so that I could be more interested in just kind of the emotional plausibility of what is happening. Does it feel real on the page and to these characters? You know, fiction is one of these few places where we can break through or past like the bounds of what is physically possible. So why not do that, right? Why not get to use the possibilities of fiction to their fullest? And, you know, lastly, you're going to be here for Spokane is reading towards the end of the month. And you have these two appearances. Now, will you just be reading or will you be workshopping? So I'll be doing two events and they're both readings with audience queuing. Um, so, you know, bring your question. <laughs> <laughs> and after reading these stories, they may have many. Someone once just said, you know, their question was just like, what is wrong with you? Which was a fun one. Oh, that's a good starting point. They literally said, what is wrong with you? Yeah, they, you know, they meant it lightheartedly, but that was literally their question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe that should have been my lead in. I, I don't know. Well, Kim, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time out to chat today. I really, really appreciate this. And uh, yeah, safe travels until you get over here. And um, yeah, we're looking forward to having you here. I'm looking forward to it, too. Thanks so much. That was Kim Fu, author of Lesser Known Monsters of the 21st Century, which recently won the Washington State Book Award for Fiction and is the featured novel for this year's Spokane is Reading event. As part of Spokane is Reading, Kim comes to Spokane next Thursday, that's October 26th, for two free events. The first is at 1 p.m. at the Spokane Valley Library, and the second is at 7 p.m. at the Central Library in downtown Spokane. For details on those, head to spokaneisreading.org. And tomorrow, Humanities Washington will unveil several original short stories as part of its annual Bedtime Stories fundraiser here in Spokane. This year, the event's theme is Quarter Moon, and the organization invited local author Sharma Shields to take part. But they did something a little different, and they also invited her husband, the graphic artist Simeon Mills, to illustrate the story that she's reading. Ahead of the Bedtime Stories event, I invited Sharma and Sam into the studio to find out what they were working on and what kind of shape it was taking. I wrote a short story called The Support Group for Lesser Moons, and it involves crescent moon, quarter moon, gibbous, and new moon, all in a school auditorium holding a support group uh, kind of based on some of my own experiences and AA and some other support group situations. <laughs> and it's kind of about them 
uh, lamenting the fact that they don't feel whole. And so there is this fantastical theme that kind of ties in with your larger body of work as well. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I almost, it's funny because I write these really metaphorical, really fantastical pieces, but I almost feel like I take the themes the most literally because, um, you know, someone will give us <laughs> the theme of quarter moon and then all of a sudden quarter moon is literally a character within my work, which I, it makes me very amused with myself that I would do that. <laughs> but, so the combination of the very literal and the fantastical <laughs> yes, as well. Yes, yes, yeah. And Simeon, what's your contribution this year? Um, well, my contribution is to illustrate these characters. And there's a lot of conversation. Kind a lot of, of dialogue. A lot yeah. of dialogue that is very, I think, you know, if you didn't see them as moons, as you will see them while, while Sharma's reading the story, uh, they could be people. And so it's kind of my job to show them as these kind of surreal entities, but also to convey all the emotions that they're going through because they're they're going through quite a bit. They're confiding in each other and there's there's humor in the story, but there's also uh, some serious topics because they're there to help each other. So I'm trying to cover all that with illustrations. And so you've taken a fairly literal and fantastical approach as well in depicting them as their names suggest. Yeah. At a certain point, you just have to kind of take a leap of faith that this is what they're going to look like. And so they look like the moons themselves. And we <laughs> we had to think I about... I mean, even well, the texture, you get the texture yeah, in there, which they is have so cool. A moon surface, but they also have faces. And I think people are, you know, probably somewhat used to seeing faces on moons. But these are these are pretty human faces, but... There was some discussion and kind of attempts on my part as to whether they should have bodies. Um, they don't have bodies. They're just they're just moons. Um, so floating moons. Floating moons, <laughs> okay. but they are, as support groups often have, they, they will be moons in folding chairs in a circle facing each other. So And, and thanking one another for sharing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, so they, some, they have a mantra. Yeah. I'm not sure if I can remember the mantra exactly, but it's... It's something like, we do not have to be full to be whole. Um, and did funny. Humanities Washington reach out to you as a husband and wife duo and say, would you please do this? Or did they reach out to you, Sharma, or you, Simeon? And then you said, you know what? We actually have a dual component here. They asked us right before the pandemic to team up on something. <laughs> they knew that Sam is a graphic artist. He's a He does comics. Um, he teaches for the design program at Eastern Washington University. And they knew that we could pair his illustrations with my work. Um, and it's very cool because we have a lot of collaboration that always happens between us. Every single piece I write, I'm positive that Sam is edited. And this was such a cool way to take that a further step. I mean, we <laughs> he would give me some illustrations and we would talk about the way that these characters look based on my early draft of the story. And then the characters would change. Um, he is defining how the characters are evolving within the story. And it, it's very fun for me to then go back in and, and make the story better by giving each moon more personality and kind of cleaning up scenes based on what you see, too. And he always sees things in such a visual way. And, you know, he has a print novel out, too. We met in grad school in Missoula uh, in the MFA program there. So I, I knew him first as just a writer. And he's awesome with narrative, but I love the visual way that he approaches his work and my work. 
and it makes this project so much better. I feel like it's just going to be really fun for the audience to see. And then finally, is this going to be the start of a new form of collaboration between the two of you? Has this got the creative ideas flowing for a future collaboration? No. <laughs> Probably, yeah, we, we might need a little break or retreat into our own projects for a little bit. But I, yeah. I definitely wouldn't say it's uh, out of the question in the future because it's, it's really fun. It um, is, yeah. I would be down to do something like this again, but only after I finish these novels that I'm working on that are far from being finished. <laughs> yeah, I have a graphic novel as well. I'm kind of right in the middle of, so we're uh, we've taken a little break to do this, yeah. but um, that's great. Cool. Well, thank you so much for coming in and uh, talking about this. Yeah, thanks, CJ. Thanks, thanks for having us. Pleasure. That was Sharma Shields and her husband, the graphic artist Simeon Mills. They're presenting an illustrated reading of Shields' original short story titled The Support Group for Lesser Moons at tomorrow's Bedtime Stories fundraiser for Humanities Washington in downtown Spokane. Sharma and Sam will be reading there along with authors Jess Walter and Charles Johnson. You can find out more about that October 20th event and purchase tickets at humanities.org. This has been the Thursday Arts Preview, a show that keeps an eye on the past, present, and future of the art scene throughout the Inland Northwest. For Spokane Public Radio, I'm E.J. Ionelli. Thursday Arts Preview receives support from Spokane Media Federal Credit Union, a member-owned financial cooperative offering lending and banking services to professionals in film, marketing, performing arts, and more. Information online at smfcu.org.